Welcome to Get on the Mend from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy. So with evidence-based advice from physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers, take charge of your health. This month, we're posting additional episodes, which will hopefully answer any questions you might have about COVID-19 and the new vaccines. In this episode, Dr. Drew Payne, Associate Program Director for Internal Medicine Residency, tells us about the different symptoms associated with COVID-19 and the after effects of COVID-19 on the body. And he also reminds us that physicians are here to help us. Dr. Payne, thank you so much for coming on Get On The Mend podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? Absolutely. So I am an internist here in internal medicine. I did schooling in Northern Missouri and then did my residency here with Texas Tech and I've stayed here ever since. Currently, I'm an assistant professor and a associate program director for the internal medicine residency program. So what that means is I teach doctors and uh, we have about 45 or so residents that we work with pretty intimately. And then we've got other residents that rotate through our service all the time. Clinically, what I do is I do inpatient medicine and outpatient medicine. So I have my own outpatient clinic and then I teach doctors in the outpatient clinic as well. And then I um, work the academic inpatient service. So in that service, we see patients during their hospitalization and uh, we work with an interdisciplinary team over in the hospital. So we work with pharmacists and round with them and then um, work with the nursing staff really intimately. Yeah, so that's basically what I do in a nutshell. It keeps me really busy and uh, especially during these times that we've had here recently. Well, speaking of these times, what can you tell us what it's like for someone who has COVID, whether it's um, being asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic or or, or what what are the symptoms that uh, people show? Well, I think initially those symptoms uh, were classified more similar to a, a common cold. So when this virus first started to spread across the globe, obviously nobody knew anything about it. But some of those first symptoms that we identified that were maybe linked to it was low-grade fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue. Later on, we realized that maybe there was also a a big element of of GI symptoms, so diarrhea, maybe some nausea and vomiting. Now that we're almost a year into this, it seems like the virus has been related to most anything under the sun, right? We've had patients present with strokes or present with uh, GI bleeds or present with confusion and delirium. It's an interesting way that this virus affects the body. And then kind of back to your question about symptoms and not having symptoms, you're right. There's a whole group of people that don't necessarily have any symptoms at all. Um, And we call those asymptomatic patients. And then there's also a group of people that feel like they don't have any symptoms, but maybe when they check their oxygen level, their oxygen levels are low. And those have been maybe not in the best term, but have been named in in some internet sites as the happy hypoxic. So the person that's going along just fine and just doesn't know that their oxygen level's low. 
there's so many ways that it affects people. Um, it, it, it's been really, really surprising. But I would say, to kind of sum that up, I, I would say that the, your common cold symptoms are what most people should really look out for. And with the caveat of if you have other symptoms that uh, you would consider serious before the pandemic, you should probably also be tested and, and uh, don't avoid medical care out of fear of the virus. What sort of short-term effects have you seen uh, from people who have had COVID-19? Uh, short-term things is nasal congestion, shortness of breath, low-grade fever, sometimes some loss of taste and smell has been identified with it as well. A lot of times those symptoms will last three to five days and then go away and a patient goes back to feeling normal after that. There's also from the psychological standpoint, there's also some anxiety and uh, maybe some depression involved with isolation and quarantine that we've definitely been able to appreciate more and more as, as time goes by. And hopefully those, those would be short-lived as well based on their situation. And uh, once they get out of quarantine, improve some of that. What are you seeing in terms of long-term effects? Long-term effects have really started to present more and more as, as we've progressed in time, right? So if we were to go back six months ago, this virus had only been around about six months. So it was hard to really understand any long-term effects. So I think as time goes by, we're able to understand those more and more. There has been an increase in people that have depression and anxiety related to long-term effects of the virus. The virus also affects the brain, the heart, and the kidneys. So we can see some delirium and confusion and fatigue later on that lasts for a long period of time. As far as the heart goes, we've seen some patients where the, the virus actually attacked the heart muscle some and made the heart not pump as well as it should and irritated that muscle. So that's something we can see much later on. Some of the groups that, and patients that have had trouble with the virus for a long period of time have, have labeled themselves as long haulers or long post-COVID patients. Those patients continue to have low-grade fevers and fatigue are the major complaints there. That is a very, very small percentage of people. And I think that when uh, we think of people that have had the virus and then gotten better, we tend to put those in the recovered category. But really, we should probably think of the recovered category as more of a category of non-infectious patients. So being infectious and being symptomatic are not coterminous. They're not the exact same thing. So being infectious, the CDC has uh, some good guidelines on that, and they feel like they've got a pretty good grasp on who is infectious and for how long they're infectious. But you being non-infectious doesn't mean that you don't have symptoms anymore. Any one of these symptoms may last for a long period of time. And I think that sometimes patients feel like, hey, I've been in isolation for seven to 10 days and I had a repeat test and it was negative. Why do I still feel bad? Well, the reason that is, is because the virus attacks your body and it takes a long time for your body to heal, even though you're no longer infectious, if that makes sense. 
Do the after effects or the symptoms, either one or both, do they differ by age? Well, so I think, um, I guess in some ways, Melissa, you know, like our older population tends to have more comorbidities. There's just more tread worn off the tires. So the longer you're around, and sometimes how I put it, the, the more birthday candles you have on your birthday cake, the more likely you are to have symptoms for a longer period of time. And that is because comorbidities affect that. Let me give you an example here. If you um, were a, you know, a 70 year old male who smoked for 20 years early on in his life and no longer smokes, there's residual damage there done to the lungs and a COVID virus that attacks the lungs is definitely going to have a bigger effect and a more long-term effect on that patient than someone who had 20-year-old, young, healthy lungs. I would say that residual symptoms and severity of symptoms definitely correlate with age, and they correlate with how many comorbidities you have, so how many other conditions you have going on. And, and we see that often in our younger patients that just don't feel bad when they get it. They just, you know, it's just kind of a, a normal cold. Whereas the older population, it hits a lot harder. Now, that being said, there is plenty of evidence to support that younger patients can also get really, really sick from this virus, uh, take a turn south and uh, even die from the virus. So I don't want people to feel like, hey, you know, I'm young, I'm invincible. And it's hard to convince young people that they're not invincible, but there is a chance that that virus is going to have the same effects for young people as it does on older people, but just not near as high of a probability. Can someone who is quote unquote over COVID, could they still spread it to others? We don't think so. You know, that goes back to the idea of when a person is no longer infectious. The number one thing to do when you come down with the virus is, is to follow your local health guidelines on when you're considered no longer infectious. This question kind of corresponds with how long does immunity last? Um, or how long can I go without, you know, worrying about being exposed to other people? The easy answer to that is 90 days. So if you had the virus right now, guidelines say that you won't get the virus again or be considered a close contact if one of your family members gets it for the next 90 days. And that uh, says to me as a physician that the evidence is out there uh, that at least 90 days worth of some immunity will last. After that, we don't know. Immunity depends on the person and it depends on the amount of viral load that they were exposed to. So uh, after that, it's probably too much of a gray area to call. And that differs from the immunity you'd get from a vaccination as well. So if, if you've gotten the virus and then go out to the public and you're after that um, recommended days of quarantine, you should feel confident that you're no longer spreading the virus, but you should still wear masks and practice social distancing. So can someone who has had COVID get it again? There's a few cases of it out there that have been reported. So I'll say yes. It's it's very, very uncommon. Just due to the way that the tests are run, 
we don't often test someone again for COVID-19 uh, virus because there, there's a high chance that they may have some of that leftover virus in, in their nose that's not full virus, but maybe a little DNA of the virus that our PCR tests pick up. But yeah, there are a few cases in the literature where people had COVID, recovered from COVID, and then possibly had it again. So I would say, yeah, yeah, it is possible. And probably all the more reason to wear your mask and social distance, even if you have it. You mentioned that it's been a year since COVID-19 struck. How long do you think you'll be researching the after effects? Well, I think we'll probably research the after effects at least through through my career. And, and we'll probably use a lot of that research and, and the way this vaccination was, was developed for protocols for other things. There was definitely a, a worldwide effort to understand this virus better. And I think that's going to have a, a lifetime of changes, at least for us and the medical field on how we understand and how we react to these types of situations. I think it's here, it's been here for a year, it's affected all of our lives across the whole world. And I think it'll be years and years before we're some normal, quote unquote. I don't know how fair a question this is, but has there been anything that just really set you back, that really surprised you about this virus, that just you thought you had seen everything and then just, just said, wow, that's, I didn't expect that. There's probably two different things that immediately came to mind while you were asking me. One's more of a medical thing, and the other thing's kind of a kind of a um, a social issue. The medical side of things, what was so amazing to me and just frightening about this virus was that I would see families that were just devastated by it. So there was a time in which we would have a patriarch and a matriarch of a family in the ICU, and maybe their their adult son and um, his wife would be in the ICU as well, and the, the other family members would have it. Grandparents would pass away. I mean, all sorts of devastating things. And we saw that time and time again. But then in the outpatient setting, I would see, you know, a very similar family dynamic of a patriarch and matriarch who, who got it as well and had symptoms for two or three days and then were fine. So I think there's a big, big element of this virus that we don't understand. You know, how does it do that? There's social predisposition uh, based on access to medicine and access to care that uh, makes some people at higher risk for the virus. But also there has to be some, or at least in my opinion, there has to be some sort of other biological issue to that. Because the treatment in the outpatient setting has just been so limited that it doesn't explain the discrepancy between those two families. So that was something on the medical side that I was really just blown away by, how it can just devastate one family and then leave another family basically unscathed. The second thing that I was amazed by is just the whole, just how charged the situation of wearing a mask has become. There's so many elements to it that are really, really positive for other people. I'm an optimist at heart. I think that people fundamentally want to help each other out. And at least in, in my mind, and as the mind of a physician, uh, wearing a mask wasn't a huge ask. So uh, I was really surprised to see how charged that request 
or mandate um, made some some other people. That I think that fundamentally changed the way that I thought about uh, our healthcare system and other people's viewpoints on on uh, care for one another. That was that was really big for me personally. Yeah. Well, having said all that, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I'd like to add that physicians in general want to help people. With COVID-19, it's been extremely challenging. There's just not that many treatments out there. And we do have some new outpatient therapies available with some monoclonal antibodies that got emergency use authorization approval. UMC and Covenant Medical Center here in Lubbock are both giving those out. Those have been distributed to hospitals throughout the state. So that's encouraging. But I would just also like to encourage people to to not believe everything that they read about therapies offered uh, by different groups. There's very little evidence that some of these medications help. And there's also a, a risk in some of these medications. So when you when you scroll through the internet and find an article of someone saying, hey, I have the cure for COVID-19. Just take that with a grain of salt and don't be overly uh, naive about that therapy. The therapies themselves, if someone truly did have a cure for COVID-19, would, would be shared across the world and be made available to a lot of people. So just be careful in what you who you trust as far as medical profession. I think we've eroded some trust in, in the scientific community. Just make sure that you trust who, who you're talking with and what medications you're taking for sure. Physicians want to help, like I said. And sometimes in situations, prescribing a medication isn't the help that someone needs. Sometimes it's education and empowerment of making the right decision. That's the help that patients need from a physician. So be careful. Well, Dr. Payne, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and talking about COVID-19 and the after effects and the symptoms and reminding us that physicians do want to help us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melissa, for having me. Mask on. Thank you for listening. On next week's episode, we will share tips for you to plan a safe holiday gathering. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Get On Demand is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center.